So last week, we talked a little bit um, using a chart here about the making of the modern world and the modern mindset. And we talked a little bit about um, breaking history into three sections, pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. And I realize this is a bit heavy on history. Uh, some people love it, some people don't. But as we think about our own culture, we think about how we formed our identity as uh, citizens of the United States. All of this works together in understanding our own backdrop. And I think it will help us to understand the world around us, especially in our day and age where we see a lot of collision of different subcultures within our own country. But uh, we, last week, we talked a little bit about that pre-modern era up to about 1500, uh, where authority was uh, found in two places, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical authority, uh, and then the political authority. And we talked a little bit about how these two powers uh, constantly were wrestling with each other uh, during this period of time that was also known as the Dark Ages. And around 1500, uh, there came uh, into the human experience several different influences. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So on this particular slide here, we want to talk a little bit about the Reformation uh, and the Enlightenment. Last week, we touched a little bit about the Renaissance. And that will set us up then uh, going into next Wednesday night into the modern era a little bit. So here's what I want us to do. We said last week that the Renaissance was a renewal of interest in the arts and um, ancient writings. We said that a lot of that began in Florence, Italy, and with an individual by the name of Petrarch who began to buy a lot of the manuscripts of some of the classic authors like Homer and Cicero and uh, wanted to help people um, begin to think in light of some of the writings that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then we talked about a man named Erasmus who was a Dutch philosopher and Catholic theologian and he is kind of a predecessor of uh, Martin Luther. In fact, um, Luther was influenced by Erasmus. And Erasmus had this big uh, desire to revive Bible translations and doctrines and church practices from the original source documents, the Hebrew scriptures and uh, the Greek New Testament, rather than the Latin translation or the priesthood. So in many ways, he begins to set up the Reformation. So if we can summarize, um, we might say that the Renaissance is this rebirth of uh, a humanistic culture, that is the potential of human beings, and it begins to enhance the education of people, uh, and they begin to learn, and as they begin to learn, they begin to discover a lot of, of new opportunities and all of this begins kind of a new movement from a pre-modern to a modern uh, era. So here's what I want to do tonight. I'm going to begin in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn open to Proverbs chapter 1. 
And then we talked a little bit about the Renaissance here. What I want to talk about uh, tonight is a little bit uh, concerning the Reformation and then some key individuals uh, regarding the Enlightenment. And that'll set us up to understand the emphasis on humanity, uh, which is this second major block that we talked about. So do you have any questions or comments before we get into some new information tonight? Anything? So the book of Proverbs is built on the theme of wisdom. And you might say that the age of reason, the age of human potential is built upon uh, the ability to recognize things and put them into play. And that's what Proverbs 1 verses 2 uh, all the way down to verse 9 is talking about. I want to read this for us tonight. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adore your neck. So this preface or prologue uh, to the book of Proverbs really does emphasize learning. It emphasizes knowledge. It emphasizes wisdom that comes from that knowledge. It emphasizes moving from simplicity to complexity and to be able to engage in life with that. Um, it, it is not talking about moving beyond God, though. In verse 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So while in the Renaissance era, there's kind of a moving away from the church and to a certain extent, kind of leaving God behind. Um, the book of Proverbs would say, no, bring God into the equation, even as you continue to develop. And as you develop and gain new information, you will know how to act in such a way that uh, it is productive and it is something that uh, will adorn your life. And that's what it says down in verse nine. They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. So what I'm trying to do in this study is sort of the uh, primer that Proverbs is giving to the ancient world in the development of knowledge and wisdom. I'm trying to give you a primer of what has set up the modern world and what has set up the modern mindset and the Western mindset in particular. So Having said that, there's a little bit of a precedence here in the book of Proverbs as it trains young men. And we also are learning and growing. And when we put these pieces together, I think a lot of things begin to make more sense. So that's my objective in it. So let's go at it. So let's talk a little bit about Martin Luther. 
Um, Martin Luther lived from 1483 to 1546. And I think most of us are um, familiar with Martin Luther. And most of us uh, know the basics of his story. Um, but here's some things I think it, that is important as it relates to uh, the overall movement toward the modern era. So let me move this just a little bit so we can see the text here. There we go. So when you think about the Reformation as a whole, it is primarily, and this is where we get the name Protestant from, it's a movement of protest against the Catholic Church and some of the things that began to be abusive for the people in the church. And what happened was this German monk, Martin Luther, uh, began to chronicle some of the things that he would like to see changed within the Roman Catholic Church. But by now, the papacy, the power structure, um, and all the things that are, were used to create that power structure and the dependency of people upon the papacy has been entrenched for quite a long period of time. And they're not gonna give this power up quickly. And so Martin Luther, legend, urban legend tells us in 1517, publishes what has been known as the 95 Theses and uh, tacked it to the wall of the Wittenberg door. Uh, there's some debate about whether that actually happened or whether he just took it directly to the bishop. Nonetheless, the 95 Theses though, was a way of beginning to deconstruct the problems and abuses within the Catholic church. And one of the key things that Luther really uh, harped upon was that the people needed to have direct access to the Bible so that they could have a way of checking on what was being taught them by uh, the priesthood. And there was some things in particular that was emphasized. Uh, I think all of us have heard phrases like sola fide, sola scriptura, those type of things were uh, things that Martin Luther emphasized, and it really came out of um, the church using people uh, to fill the coffers of the system so that it could build further um, uh, structures, and that gets, you know, into a complex area, but the way they did it was through a thing called indulgences. So even though, um, uh, you know, people were going uh, to church and when these churchgoers died, there was no guarantee that they would go into the presence of God or what we might say heaven without going into purgatory first. And purgatory was a non-biblical uh, doctrine, but it was built upon the tradition of the Catholic church that said, no, every person needs to be pure, uh, and they need to be pure uh, by going through purging in purgatory. And once they're uh, then made pure, they can enter into heaven. Well, if you wanted to quicken purgatory up, you could make a payment to the Catholic church, and it was called an indulgence. And if you made that payment, it was a way to fill the coffers 
the priest would then um, uh, pray that this soul that you want to see uh, get out of purgatory, he would pray for um, the release of that soul from purgatory. So a couple of things I've often thought about in relationship to this is if the priest really had that power, why wouldn't he pray for everybody to be released from purgatory? Because they wanted to make money. That's exactly exactly right. So um, there was an old saying that says, once a, um, a coin in the coffer rings, uh, a soul from purgatory springs. There's this little uh, proverb that was used. So for Martin Luther, this whole system that had developed over hundreds of years, began to fall apart for him because he didn't see any of this teaching in the scriptures itself. And so he became the mouthpiece of a groundswell, really, of resentment. And you can imagine uh, being abused by the authority over hundreds of years that it began building up. And as it built up, Martin Luther kind of became the, um, the mouthpiece for this entire era of frustration and resentment. And so he wanted to reform the church. He didn't really want to replace it. He wanted to reform the Catholic church. However, um, his ideas in 1520 uh, and following were condemned officially by the Roman Catholic church. And so Luther made a break from the Catholic Church, and in many ways, it um, was a springboard uh, to a, a a sense of Jewish, uh, not Jewish, German nationalism uh, began to grow, and out of that came the Lutheran Church, and it was kind of um, emphasized uh, through some of the preaching uh, that was going on during that era. There are a lot of reformers. I think most of us have heard of Luther and Calvin, but there were a lot of reformers. And um, people began to think that this would be a way out of poverty and hunger and inflation and that type of thing. So in many ways, this kind of merges, not just as a religious reformation, but a social ref uh, reformation as well, because in 1524, there's a thing called the Peasant War that broke out as a rebellion against a lot of the abuses that were uh, being done by the religious authorities. So that gives a little bit wider context than just Martin Luther wanting to start a new religion. That's, it's interwoven into the culture, it's interwoven into a lot of the social abuses that were going on. It's not just a doctrinal thing, it's a sociological thing as well. Does, does that make sense to everybody? Any comments or questions there? There's another individual also at the, uh, during the time of Luther, um, his name was Zwingli. He lived from 1484 to 1531. He had a little bit different emphasis and a different geographical area. He was the first uh, reformer in Switzerland, and um, he was influenced by the writings of Erasmus, which we already talked about, and he wanted religious reform as well, but he rejected vehemently against these things here, 
uh, that he felt were not found in the scripture. And that is the veneration of saints. That is, um, you know, giving sainthood to certain individuals, pilgrimages, purgatory. He was against uh, clerical celibacy as well. He felt that the priest should be able to marry. And then he had some difficulties with the sacraments. Last week, we talked a little bit about um, one interpretation of the Lord's table was in the Catholic Church that it becomes the body and blood of the Lord. The bread becomes his body, the uh, wine becomes his blood. So uh, just like Luther's Germany, Protestantism begins to swell within Switzerland. And what does it spark? Um, it sparks a civil war. In 1529, there's a civil war that breaks out between uh, Protestant and Catholic areas. And Zwingli himself died on a battlefield in 1531. And um, we've seen that it wasn't too, too long ago when this same Protestant and Catholic violence uh, was found in Ireland. You remember that? A lot of that was going on. So this is something that kind of um, repeats itself. Um, but here's, here's what does happen. Now there's new groups that are starting to emerge. So these new groups, which will eventually become denominations <laughs> in, in, in various ways, begin to take a more radical turn in their efforts to reform the Catholic Church. They desire to see a separation of church and state so that uh, politics and uh, is not tainted by religion and vice versa. And um, these, uh, these reformers uh, would go even a step farther than Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. Um, and one dominant group uh, that grew out of this era was called the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were individuals that um, they were nonviolent. Uh, they um, were more passive. And anabaptizo is to be baptized again. So uh, the Anabaptists felt that individuals that would be followers of Jesus, even if they were baptized as children, should get rebaptized. And um, so these individuals um, took a, 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 a more, how do I want to put this, a more um, zealous approach uh, against uh, the Catholic Church than even Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. Do you have any thoughts there, comments there, questions? Now, here's what's going to happen. So all of this is a new emphasis on reason and the ref of the reforms that should come from reason. So we concentrate because we go to church and we're familiar with the Reformation, but it widens out to wider circles. And what we find is intellectuals um, are also going to apply reason and uh, reform to all kinds of fields. And you can see here on the screen, everything from politics to economics and, and criminology as well. Are, uh, so reason is starting to become the means whereby uh, 
culture is going to advance. And so um, despite resistance from church and state, this dawning of what became known as the age of reason uh, gets some momentum. And it begins to filter into the various ranks of society. And this in many ways is gonna be some of the foundation elements uh, that uh, redefine Western civilization. And in many ways we'll see it becomes some of the foundation elements of our own country when it gets started as well. So you have new ideas, you have new beliefs, you have uh, geographic exploration that's taking place. Um, during the uh, 16th and 17th centuries, astronomy and physics um, is gaining the attention of scholars. And there's a thing called the Copernican revolution that emerges. So prior to this age of reason, it was believed that the earth was at the center of the solar system. And Copernicus comes along and says, no, uh, the sun is at the center. And he was condemned by the Catholic church because it was a new idea. And you can throw Galileo in there as well. But this Copernican revolution is built on science. And so it's moving beyond scripture because if you look at scripture, the way some uh, verses read, you might think that the earth is kind of at the center, but science begins to uh, emerge through telescopes and that type of thing. And through reason and uh, logic, they begin to understand that, no, the earth goes around the sun. The, and and you, that becomes known as the Copernican revolution. Um, later, the Catholic Church will come around and, and say that these scientists were right, but it would take a while because they didn't want to let go of their tradition and they didn't want to let go of their power. That makes sense? So along comes a guy by the name of Descartes, Rene Descartes. He lived from 1596 to 1650. This guy um, is fascinating because he is an individual that basically was a mathematician. He dabbled in philosophy, but he would become known as the father of modern philosophy. And he is looking around and he's seeing that many of the hierarchical and religious authorities that had been in power so long is beginning to break down. And he says, you know, uh, we need to, to go back and doubt everything and, be, and use reason rather than tradition and those type of things we talked about. So while it might see, seem like a good thing that um, there's a breaking away from religious and political abuse, you cannot function without authority in place. You know, so uh, things are confusing. What's going to replace this line of authority that told people how to live? Uh, so he then uh, begins to use reason as the ultimate authority. And, and quite frankly, reason is going to replace the influence of the church. So he writes this book. And boy, I, I, I think he could have come up with a little bit uh, 
more interesting title. Discourse on the Method of Rightly Conducting the Reason. That's the title. So, but here's his thesis. I'm going to doubt everything I can possibly doubt. So he goes through this process of his own kind of deconstruction, and he had four steps that were involved in this. Doubt everything. Doubt everything you can possibly doubt. Number two, break every problem into smaller parts. Divide up the difficulties. Examine as many parts as possible to see what still remains. Thirdly, solve the simplest problems first, and uh, then finally be as thorough as possible. So if he's going to doubt, he, he's going to start with, I'm going to doubt with everything, doubt everything I can. I'm going to break this down. I'm going to solve the problems through reason, uh, the simplest ones first, and I'm going to keep at it. Well, what he does is he doubts everything to the point where he says, uh, he comes up with this famous statement. I don't know if you've ever heard it or not. I think, therefore, I am. So he, he's going to doubt everything, but he finds he can't doubt his own existence. And so he, that, he says, well, I know I'm thinking these things. That's going to be the starting point. And from there, he is going to uh, come to the conclusion uh, that he really does exist, that he's not, he's not an illusion. And from that, he then begins the development of rationalism, which is the belief that reason should be the primary source of knowledge, whereas the church world, even to this day, would say, no, revelation is also a source as well, the revelation that's found in the scripture. So reason um, then begins to bring about an element of democracy. Uh, it's no longer just the elite, the priesthood, that has the ability to determine uh, through their authority what to do. Now individuals can think on their own and uh, they can find truth and they can begin to implement that truth. So with that, what becomes a part of that element is the fact that there is the uh, emergence uh, that we'll talk next week about of, of, of science, uh, science begins to explode and there are new discoveries that are taking place. So people are gonna begin to have more ability to make decisions and through their own ability to reason and Descartes kind of leads the way on that. So people were hopeful out of this because if reason is the source of authority, then we can, like the scripture says, even uh, God says, come, let us reason together. In other words, let's sit down, let's think about this. And from that, an individual by the name of John Locke, he came about a generation after Descartes, used kind of the same line of thinking as people are born with this ability to reason, they are born free, and he begins to, from his earliest writings, emphasize individual liberty, and out of that comes even the notion of private property. Now, what's interesting is John Locke will be a major influence 
upon two revolutions, the American Revolution in 1776 and the French Revolution in 1789. Um, and what he is emphasizing is ethics are no longer determined by the church or the state, but through the use of reason, we can determine what is right and what is wrong. Now, that can be good or that can be bad, um, depending upon your starting place. And what I think is happening is there becomes a setup in many respects where it's one or the other rather than understanding, let's use revelation that God has given and let's use reason to understand how this revelation is to be applied to a given situation or societal structure. Then there's one last individual that I want to mention. His name is Immanuel Kant, and he comes at the end of the Enlightenment, 1724 to 1804. So the Enlightenment is about, about 1500 to 1800. And he is a believer in, um, in, in ripping the superstition away from religion. And so what he wants to do is take away a lot of what had been taught and indoctrinated in people. And he wants to uh, use reason, just like Locke, just like Descartes. Um, and what we find is he then begins to take reason and use it to attack certain elements of religion and uh, as a way of taking the power away from the Catholic Church in particular. The only problem is the more there is the emphasis on reason, there is the exit of mystery. So when everything is reason, what do you do when you come up against things that you can't reason? There's certain things you just cannot figure out through reason because it's a mystery. Um, the apostle Paul talks about how he looks through a glass that's dark someday um, that will be removed and he'll see clearly. Um, so certainty, and this is very important, certainty becomes kind of the new emphasis, and it will eventually creep its way into the understanding of faith. So Sunday, we talked a little bit about how faith doubts, and that is there's certain things we cannot understand, there's certain things that we cannot figure out, and if we want to emphasize certainty, what we're going to do is find that it's eventually going to fall apart because there's certain things, certainty being one of them, that, um, you know, you cannot, you cannot completely rationalize. So with that, faith and mystery is an element of trust. So that's one of the things we talked about on Sunday is faith has an element of trust in things that we are uncertain about. And so even faith has doubts and that in the sense of there are certain things that we're never going to figure out. We have to take it by faith and take steps forward and understanding that in due time, hopefully, that mystery will lift. And like the Apostle Paul says, uh, as we look through um, a glass uh, that's clouded and um, it, it will clear up. And so when when we do that, then we can understand, maybe, maybe not, 
uh, some of the things that we cannot figure out in this life. I kind of think that part of eternity's um, purpose in the presence of God is our continued uh, development, our continued learning uh, on into eternity of things that we could never fully understand about God or life in, in this life. So does that make sense? So here's Immanuel Kant. And you can see he takes on that look of that uh, era of the revolution with the wig uh, type hairstyle, that type of thing. Yeah, he lived a long life too. Yeah, yeah. Some thoughts there? Questions? The, now, the only, Larry? Yeah. yeah. The only, only John Locke I ever heard of was the one that was a major character in Lost. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, you have to know that TV show to, to know what <laughs> who that individual is. No, uh, John Locke played a very uh, instrumental role in education, actually. Um, so I'm sure, um, did you touch upon John Locke at all when you were getting your teaching certificate at all, Beth? Yeah, I mean, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he he plays he plays an instrumental part in in the ongoing development of society. These guys, you know, they're they're Kant and others. You know, if you read some of the books on apologetics, it gets pretty heavy duty. It does. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've, I've read some of that three or four times over and over. I can't still can't quite get it. And and this is just thumbnail that I've given you. There's a lot of complexities. Then there's a lot more personalities too. Yeah. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you. I want to show you a video. Um, this video was a series of talks given um, by Steve Chalk. Steve is a pastor over in London. Uh, the church that uh, he pastored. Uh, is a church called Oasis. And several years back, it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 2017. So he did a series of, he calls chalk talks on um, understanding where uh, the Reformation was, where it's taken us and where we should, uh, where we should go with what we've learned over the last 500 years. And um, he is an individual, if you were to Wikipedia search him, Steve Chalk became very instrumental in a lot of influences in England um, regarding education, social reform, social services. So even though he's a pastor, he really, he really put his fingers into a lot of other things. So I want, I thought this might be helpful because he, he's talking about some of the same things that we've just talked about tonight. And I think it might, he does a better job probably than I did of summarizing it. So uh, hang tight and we're going to watch this. It's about seven minutes long. Welcome to Chalk Talk. 
This is the first of a series of short videos that's going to explore questions around our model of church and ask, is it fit for the 21st century? And if not, what do we need to change? It was exactly 500 years ago that Martin Luther, the German priest and scholar, nailed his 95 theses or questions or complaints to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And his action kick-started what we call the Reformation, the birth of Protestant churches as they broke away from Catholicism. Luther complained about indulgences. They were certificates that priests issued for that. money so that people or their relatives could get time off purgatory. But he was actually complaining about much more. For him, the shape of the established church and its relationship with the state just didn't fit with the needs of the world in which he was called to live and serve. His world had been changing and changing fast. So we're gonna take a very quick look at three trends and two people that influenced Luther and helped create the environment in which he thought and worked and the necessity for change. The first is the Renaissance. That's the whole period of European development between the 14th and 17th century. It's kind of regarded as the cultural bridge between the old Middle Ages and modern history and modern thinking. By the 16th century, in other words, by the time Luther was alive, its influence was felt right across Western Europe in literature, philosophy, art, music, politics, science, and of course, religion. It was a subtle shift that took place about the way that intellectuals approached their whole way of thinking. It was a new quest for learning. And as part of it, many old ancient Greek texts, in fact, the New Testament itself, were brought back from the East, from Byzantium, Constantinople, to Western Europe. And for the first time in about a thousand years, Western scholars engaged in study with these original texts. All this helped pave the way for Luther and the Reformation. The second influence was the development of banking as it spread from Northern Italy right across Western Europe uh, during the 15th and 16th centuries. That was because subsistence living was disappearing and now you could be independently wealthy and therefore independent. The third influence was the invention of the printing press in around 1440. By 1500, printing presses were in operation across Western Europe. It was the social media of the day. Information was available to the many, if not to the masses, because it was still very expensive for the first time. Together, these three great influences shaped the environment into which Luther was thinking and working. They created a new sense of autonomy, a new sense of individualism, and therefore the soil for independent thinking, a new kind of world. There were also two people, contemporaries of Luther, that perhaps influenced his thinking more than anyone else. The first of these was Machiavelli, the Italian politician and philosopher and writer, who's often been called the father of modern political science. In 1513, just five years before Luther nailed his thesis to the door of that church, Machiavelli wrote The Prince. So subversive was this book that it wasn't actually published widely until 1532, five years after he died. But a private version appears to have been around and perhaps Luther got to read it. 
whether or not he actually read it, we know that he was influenced by Machiavelli's thought, which was all about autonomy and independence. One man that we know that Luther actually knew and corresponded with was Erasmus, and he's the second thinker that influenced Luther. He was a Dutch Renaissance thinker, a Catholic priest and a theologian, and he was highly critical of the church and its doctrines. Amongst many other books, he translated the New Testament from Greek and also a Latin version. And his thinking and other books raised loads of questions about the church's practice. It influenced Luther's thought. But while Erasmus was critical of the abuses, many of them within Catholicism, and he called for reform, he remained until his dying day a loyal member of that church, committed to reforming Catholicism and its clerical abuses from inside. Luther had huge admiration for him and for his superior learning, but he was annoyed by the fact that Erasmus, as Luther saw it, wouldn't stand up and be counted for change. So it was that Martin Luther came to nail his 95 theses or points of debate to the door of that church in Wittenberg and it became the catalyst for what we call the Reformation. Of course, Luther got lots right and he got lots wrong and John Calvin and many others debated his thinking over the years and centuries to come, but he was a huge influence on the whole church both the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation within Catholicism. So today, in the early years of the 21st century, it seems clear to me that once more, the shape of the established church, the way we do things, no longer fits the needs of our world, the world in which we're called to live and serve. We live in a world that's globally connected, we can get all sorts of worldviews instantly on our phone. While the preacher's preaching, we're checking on our smartphones to see whether she or he is right or wrong. We live in an age that's information rich. We live in an age that's suspicious of institutions. We don't trust them, we trust our friends. Hierarchy is disappearing or we don't believe in it and we don't want it. We want to be more organic than that. When I was a kid, my vicar used to stand in his pulpit and tell us what was right and wrong and how to understand the Bible. We don't go to church for information, if we go at all anymore. We go for community because that's what we crave. Community, openness, transparency, honesty. Places where we can debate and question and be honest about our doubts. So what kind of church do we need for the 21st century? Is it time for a new reformation? What do you think? I'll see you next week. Okay, so um, that's what I have for you tonight. Uh, we, we can spend some time uh, talking about the things that we looked at. Uh, do you have any comments, questions uh, that you wanna raise? Well, I, I wish that today they were more focused on the separation of church and state that we took with us into our constitution. Yeah. See, eventually in, in the next several weeks, I'm going to move from the pre-modern to modern to post-modern. 
And then I want to talk a little bit about the making of our own culture. And you're exactly right. They're still emerging of politics and religion. And um, I, in particular, want to talk a little bit about why there is such um, cultural um, uh, division. And it goes back not too long ago to the rise of the influence of things like the moral majority and trying to get those type of things into the po political structure of our society. So you're exactly right, uh, Shelley. It, it seems as though there's this merging and blending of these it's two. It's going back. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So comments or questions anyone has? So this study is different, but I think in the end, what will happen is it will help us kind of understand a little bit better why we're seeing a lot of the collision that's taking place in different cultures within our own country. Uh, that's my ultimate goal then is, okay, is there, is there a way that we can build bridges rather than continue uh, building of walls between people that we don't necessarily uh, see life the same way. So I don't know, this is just an interest that I had as we have had a, we've had an interesting four years in this country and what's gonna happen in the next election cycle largely depends I think on whether we understand what's going on or not. And so like the, uh, the reference that we had last week out of uh, Chronicles that said, the men of Issachar were men who understood their times and knew what to do. Hopefully we can gain a little bit of that from this information. Any other questions? If you're not clear, just ask a question. You might find that the other other people in the study also might not have clarity on that either. So, okay. Well, you are very, very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then if you don't have anything else, then we'll stop here for the evening. And uh, I trust you'll have a good uh, rest of the evening. Thanks, Larry. All Thank right. you. You're Thank welcome. You. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> All right. Going to be able to see Thanks. her tomorrow <laughs> or the day yep. after. <laughs> tomorrow. That's great. Yeah. All right. Terrific. Bye. Bye.